The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is the episode for the 12th of December, 2013, in which we talk about ambiguity and look at the dog with one eye. So, Carmen, would you rather have $500 today or a 50-50 shot at $1,001 tomorrow? Uh, I'm going to say 50-50 shot at 1001 tomorrow. Really? Yes. Most people would rather have 500 today. Yeah, you know, I like to live dangerously. Wow. <laughs> No, I just bought a house, so a thousand can go farther than five hundred. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, one of the things we have to do as uh, engineers is deal with a lot of uncertainty and variability. And when we go to school, a lot of what's taught is you know rational decision making, uh, but it, that requires us to be aware of a lot of stuff. We have to be aware of probabilities, and we have to be aware of consequences, and the proper application of the probabilities to statistics. We have to consider the solutions and we have to consider the external risk to others. When, you know, when we take actions, it may have a certain influence or impact on us, but it also has an impact on others. So that all gets very complicated very quickly. And uh, so we thought we'd uh, spend this episode talking about the uh, related topics of ambiguity and uncertainty and risk. And so before we get into that, I thought I'd just make a quick plug to see if any of our listeners, again, might like to uh, participate, join us on the Engineering Commons podcast. You know, if you have an insight about engineering or perhaps you've got a pet peeve, we're always looking for people to join us and to share their experiences in the world of engineering. Even just an interesting story will do. An interesting story or perhaps just a, an interesting thought, an interesting viewpoint. We could, we could do with that as well. It's, it's not hard to be a guest. Uh, you just need a microphone and a headset and a computer with a uh, decent internet connection. And uh, if we agree that your story would, would uh, work well for our format, then uh, we'll have a little email conversation as to what the episode will be about, and we'll write up a few notes uh, and share them with you so that uh, we can agree on what we talk about. And uh, then we all get online together and we have a conversation. It's not too painful, uh, not too horrible. So uh, certainly be interested if, any of our listeners would like to join us here on the Engineering Commons. Face for Radio helps too. <laughs> <laughs> and we and we know you're out there. We get uh, we get thousands of visits to the website each month, so we know people are listening and people are uh, uh, checking out the website. So uh, here's your official invitation: come join us on the Engineering Commons in uh, 2014. If you decide you'd like to do so, you can reach us uh, by email. It's admin a d m i n at TheEngineeringCommons.com. Do we have to pay royalties if we want to use the Price is Right music for Come On Down? I think we do, actually. <sighs> well, let's make it just uh, just different enough where they can't charge us with anything. <laughs> oh, dude, 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 dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some, what is this, like seven seconds is fair use or something like that? Uh, something like that, yeah. Is it fair use if you just loop it? I, I don't know. <laughs> So uh, uh, have you guys ever been in a situation where you, you're asked to do something where the request seems somewhat ambiguous? Every day, it seems. <laughs> it's our entire lives. 
and and ambiguous in what manner and, and in, in big, ambiguous in the sense that it's kind of vague or ambiguous in the sense that it could be interpreted one in one of the uh, several manners a little, little bit of both um, you know sometimes there's there's a language barrier with me and the guys in the field mm-hmm. so they'll send an email in their best English and uh, you know it's maybe not always worded correctly so I, I either have to ask three or four follow-up emails which with time differences could take too long or take my best guess and start diving in and taking data. Mm-hmm. Um, other times, especially when we're coming up with a new product, you know, you work with customers and vendors like Intel and everybody, and you try and get the best feel for the market and what specs you have to hit, but nothing's really set in stone. So at some point, you just have to dive in and make a decision and get something out the door. Mm-hmm. What about you, Adam? Well, uh, I've had a lot of situations which... The first time I heard it probably makes about as much sense as would you. It's like, why don't you go put together a CADEX for me? And I'm sure that means nothing to any of you guys. Uh, first time I heard that, it didn't mean anything either. Okay. So uh, I, I see a lot of ambiguity in jargon and uh, just different people talking about things in different ways. Mm-hmm. What is a CADEX? A CADEX is a categorical exclusion, which explains a lot more. Uh, not really. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a document reviewing the environmental impacts of a project, but only projects below a third, a certain threshold as dictated by federal law, uh-huh. which I'm sure makes a lot more sense. Surprisingly, it doesn't. Yeah. I think there'd be little to no ambiguity in civil engineering and road building. I mean, how ambiguous is it? Build a road to Chicago. Chicago's not moving. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, obviously you're not familiar with things like subsoil or subsurface investigations and things like that. Everything is um, very ambiguous. My oversimplification, my oversimplification is correct. Yes. You know, it's about like me saying, um, make me a computer. Uh, sure. How big a one? (laughs) A good one. Okay. A really good one or just a good one? Ah, that's ambiguous. (laughs) Uh, darn it we ran into it already (laughs) don't we need a certain level of ambiguity anyway in order to keep our conversations from going on forever and ever i mean if i say go i need a computer you understand that i've got something in mind it might be linux mac you know pc but it keeps me from saying i want a pc with a uh, core i7 4770k processor that's in a lga 1055 socket that has so many gigabytes of DDR3 1866 memory. I mean, I could be very specific in that way, but do, we don't always need that level of specificity, do we? Well, and as I see it, that's part of our job as engineers is to take that ambiguous task and figure out those very specific technical requirements. Yeah, I, I agree. And that, and that's one of the things that, uh, I want to, us to talk about this evening. Uh, in fact, it's one of three things that, that I thought we might cover. One is uh, ambiguity in request. That is when we get asked to do stuff, and we talked a little bit about that, where can the uh, ambiguity arise and what can we do about it? Uh, and the second is ambiguity in response. That is, once we've un- started to undertake uh, the problem-solving process, how do we deal with ambiguity in the models that we're using? And thirdly is ambiguity in responsibility. Uh, what exactly is it that we as engineers are expected to do? 
we talked with uh, James Trevelyan in a previous episode that we titled Value about how engineers value their own time and, and the economic value of engineers. And his assessment was exactly what you just said, Adam, that engineers generate economic value by reducing uncertainty. Well, I was going to say, so there you go, Adam. You're reducing, uh, you're adding value. <laughs> uh, that, that's good to know. Unless there's a toll road, then you're removing value. <laughs> I was going to say, so far we've been uh, painting ambiguity in a bit of a bad light, and maybe we'll come into this more later, but uh, sometimes it can be good because, you know, it avoids micromanaging. You know, sometimes I like when my boss just gives me an ambiguous task, like, uh, figure out if we can use this chip in some way it wasn't originally intended, and, you know, I just go off and do it, and instead of having a three-hour meeting discussing each and every test I'm supposed to do, uh, it's just kind of left up into my hands and I'm able to go do my job. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we had to sit down and micromanage everything and make sure there was zero ambiguity in what he was asking, nothing would ever get done. Right. And and so why do you think that he he presented the query in, in ambiguous in, – in, 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 <laughs> I can hardly <laughs> say it. Why did he present it in an ambiguous manner? Well, I'll, I'll give two reasons. Um, okay. One, maybe he's not exactly sure what has to be done either. Uh, and number two, which I hope is the case, perhaps I'm a good enough engineer or I can figure it out on my own, and he trusts me to do that. Okay. So so ambiguity can be a good thing if used properly? Yes. Okay. Well, let's, let's uh, consider some of the reasons, uh, since we've sort of stumbled into that, some of the reasons that someone might give us an ambiguous uh, request. Boy, ambiguous is really a tough word to, to work cleanly into sentences, I noticed. <laughs> Maybe we're not qualified to talk about this topic if we can't even say it. <laughs> uh, you, you, you may have may have a point. Uh, we should put a disclaimer in there. This may all be hearsay. Okay. So, for instance, uh, a, if your boss is just completely overloaded with uh, what's going on, they, you might get a request like, just get regulatory off my back. Well, what the heck does that mean? Is it writing a report? Is it going talking to someone? That's pretty vague. It's a request, get regulatory off my back, but it's not very specific. I would suspect in a case like that, the manager's, you know, just plain overloaded and, and uh, hasn't thought out what needs to be done is expressing more a uh, an emotional plea than a, a technical request. Or maybe the regulator is just physically on his back. Well, that would be a problem. So, th- so co- we had the uh, last episode was about context. And if you were in the office and you could see the regulator actually on his back, then you'd know that what he meant was to pull the regulator off the back and out of the office. Uh, that, that is true. All right. A- any other, any other uh, reasons that uh, an ambiguous request might be made of, of an engineer? Uh, you, might, you might just be brainstorming, you know, just, just throwing things out there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, well, what if we had a theoretical efficiency of 100%? How, what steps would we have to take to get there, and where does that train of thought break down? And if it breaks down, you know, did it produce a usable idea? You know, when we're talking about adding features to a chip, or, uh, you know, does the whole thing just have to be scrapped and we move on to the next item on our list? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't want to uh, constrain the design uh, options. You want to try to... A- you always want to try to solve all problems for everyone. 
and making decisions and being specific tends to uh, end that process. So the suggestion would be made to do something, but not not telling you how to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, or specifically not giving uh, closed-ended. I, I want X number of inputs, or this is how you know I want three data lines. You know, you you wouldn't want to limit. I need at least three data lines. Right. But it could be twelve. And so Adam mentioned one earlier when he was talking about what was it? Cadex, Codex. What was the Cadex? Cadex is that C A D E X or something? C A C A T E X. C A T E X. And so certainly, I've been in, in meetings where the the terminology is just you know different. Every industry, every company has its own phraseology and terminology, and you know somebody gives you something like. Well, you need to go take care of the fractal lodger in the in the personometer right now. It just does. If you don't know the words, it has no meaning. Is that next to the lunar raining wing shaft? Yes, in your retro encabulator. <laughs> mm-hmm. Based on theories of magnetic reluctance and capacitive directance. <laughs> or, is, or is that the turbo encabulator? Oh, I don't know. Now we're getting too technical for me. I, I don't know, but that will give me an excuse to put a link in the show notes to the uh, to the video with the guy doing the uh, the explanations. And the hand, the hand gestures for the fluorescent scoring motion. <laughs> Rockwell, Rockwell automation. I don't know if it's real or supposed to be a joke, but it's it's hilarious. It all sounds like electrical engineering to me. <laughs> it's more amusing if it's real. Yeah, yeah. If we want to be dangerous and link to TV tropes, it's a great example of techno babble. Exactly. Which, for those of you who don't know out there, is uh, when you say technical sounding things that don't actually mean anything. Oh, yeah. So last week, uh, Chris used one that I had heard him use before, but the first time I heard him use, I had no idea what he meant. He, when he talked about a bodge wire, I'd never heard of such a thing before. I hadn't either. I forget who told me. But. He's been hanging out with the, uh, the Aussie a little bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if you look up bodge, it, the, the dictionary version is someone who does something clumsily. And so a, a bodge wire is, you know, Sort of a uh, a clumsy fix, I guess, but uh, it it uh, you know in certain parts of electrical engineering it gets used electrical engineering it gets used widely. But as a mechanical engineer, I'd gone through you know nearly thirty years of practice and never heard anybody ever refer to uh, to a bodge wire. Do you guys have bodge springs or bodge gears? <laughs> Do not. I've never bodge. I've never heard of. Uh, here, here's another one that I've I've run in. A time or two is that the ambiguity tends to come from conflicting data, and so you've got okay. So so here's an example from a long time ago. When I was in college, I had a friend who was not in engineering, and this friend was explaining one day why her car got better gas mileage when the tank was full, <laughs> and as an engineer. I said, huh? And listened uh, carefully to her explanation. She said, well, when I fill up the tank, then I can drive a long time, and the needle on the tank goes down very slowly. But when I get to the empty tank, when it gets to the end, it goes very quickly, almost all the way to empty. So I get better gas mileage when the when the tank is full. Oh, I know this one. <laughs> <laughs> and so as someone who is a non-engineer, she did all the things we expect, you know, to, you to do with the scientific method. She, she had a hypothesis. She 
relied on her instruments. Her hypothesis seemed to match. She got better gas mileage when the tank was full because the, the, the gas gauge went down more slowly. That makes perfect sense if you are able to ignore the, the fact that the heavier car should get less, less <laughs> gas mileage. That sounds a bit like the crew uh, last year claiming the, uh, what was it, the neutrinos that were coming out of the Large Hadron Collider were traveling oh, faster, faster than, than the light. Yeah, faster than the speed of light. <laughs> yeah, was that last year or was that longer? Might have been two years ago. I don't know. I feel old. Doesn't matter. <laughs> right, so that so that's a perfect example because you've got you've got results that tell you one thing, but you've got a long term understanding that this is impossible. You can't nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And so when, when you're asked to deal with that, then it can get pretty ambiguous. What which do you believe? Do you believe your scientific measurements or do you believe the theory that's been established for many years? And the correct answer is you publish new physics. <laughs> Assume you have a new paradigm shift. Yes. I was going to go with instrumentation error. No, no, no. It's cold <laughs> fusion. What do you remember? What actually happened? <laughs> no. I, what did actually happen? Uh, I, I'm pretty sure uh, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've read about this, but they had... Um, some cables misaligned, some fiber optic cables, and you know, there was a bit of dust or something wasn't tightened to the right spec, and it was causing the tens of nanoseconds error they were seeing. It was a bodge fiber. Yeah, <laughs> bodge fibers. <laughs> I wonder how long it took them to find that out. It was long enough. It was a few months, I believe, because they also waited for other, other groups to do the same experiment or similar experiments and uh, try and see if they got similar data. Nope, neutrinos still traveling slower than the speed of light. It's ridiculous. Well, I've got another reason. Uh, ignorance and confusion about whatever, usually a requirement. Like someone saying, use Bluetooth to communicate with this machine, and not really having any comprehension of what Bluetooth should be used for. Make these outlets digital. <laughs> <laughs> You mean the power outlets? Yes. Yeah. Is that, has that actually been asked? Uh, it was in an old uh, Scott Adams piece. Oh, okay. I'm Insane just getting... request given to engineers. Gotcha. <laughs> I'm just now starting to read Hitchhiker's Guide, so I'll catch up on all those later. Did I say Scott Adams? I meant to say, who wrote Dilbert? Scott Adams. Oh, okay. right. I'm thinking yeah. of Douglas Adams. Yes, it's no, good he thing confused we're not recording me. or they'd revoke my nerd card. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing requested was the multimedia fax machine. <laughs> so there's no ambiguity in that request. Use Bluetooth to, to communicate with the machines. There's just vagueness because the request doesn't match up with the expected outcomes. There's just no way that Bluetooth is going to communicate, say, across the street or across the town to where the plant's located, or maybe not through a, you know, over hundreds of feet through a, a busy, uh, a busy uh, manufacturing facility. Through thick concrete walls and everything. Right. But that doesn't mean that as an engineer, you're not going to come against, up against that from time to time. Something, something that I've seen before is uh, a certain amount of ambiguity when people are asking you to commit to something. They'll, as we know, we've talked about in previous episodes, when you start a project, you don't know all the details. And so lots of things seem kind of easy when you're, you know, just 
ballparking it. But when you get into it, it seems uh, much more difficult. And so we talked about in an early episode, I, I shared my, my use of the, uh, the multiplier pi in uh, trying to estimate time and, and uh, dollars. And, but you'll, you'll be in a meeting and someone will say, well, we can get something like this done in six weeks, right? Well, unless you've done it before, who knows? You know, that's, there's a lot of uncertainty in that thing. Or there'll be insert something like, I'll put you in charge of this project. And you're left wondering, well, what does in charge of mean? Does that mean that I get to boss people around? Does that mean I have budgetary authority? Uh, does that mean that I get to pick the people that work for me? Or does it just mean that I'm going to be the turkey that gets, uh, gets selected for the, uh, for the beatings when, uh, when the project goes poorly? The latter. <laughs> it, 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 it could be. But, There's no uh, ambiguity in that. <laughs> <laughs> so there's lots of ways that that uh, the requests that are made of us could be ambiguous. So, what do you think are some of the ways that you can deal with those ambiguous requests in a a professional manner? You can always just ask for someone to clarify a point, right? You know, you're in charge of this project. Okay, what what responsibilities does that entail? Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that's a natural question to ask after. You know, someone says that to you. Right. And I think that's easier once you've gotten through about the first year of engineering, you're, you're less afraid. But certainly, I think that first year is really difficult to come in and, and ask questions because you're not sure what people expect you to know and what you actually know. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know what constitutes a dumb question or a uh, cover your ass question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we always say there's no such thing as a stupid question, but you know there are certain questions you got to ask that people in the room are going to go, well, where did he come from? Yeah, yeah, that's something everybody should know. <laughs> I think you should also uh, assume that your counterpart isn't a villain of some kind, that they probably have good intentions. Everyone wants what's best. Sometimes right. they just don't know how to get there. Yeah, we, we had a... a uh, just an episode on critical thinking where our guest talked about needing to assume that other people had, had good intentions. It's easy for us as, as engineers to start criticizing others who we think are not in the know for their lack of mental acuity, but it may be that they're dealing with other issues that have nothing to do with the technology that, uh, that are consuming their uh, brain cycles. So one of the other ways that I've found for... Uh, dealing with ambiguous inputs, that is when, when I'm asked to do things and, and the particulars keep seeming to change, is to keep a journal of the meetings I've been to, the decisions that have been made, my progress, their progress. And it's easy for people to forget what's been said in meetings, but usually if I'm able to come back and point to my journal that's written in ink and it says, you know, on October 13th, you said that, or somebody said that we would uh, keep the product cost under $15, and uh, now you're saying you want it under $10, that's fine. We can work from there, but you need to understand that, you know, several months ago we were given the directive that we were to keep it under this $15 cost. That's usually pretty that's pretty effective in uh, shutting down someone who's going to claim that they gave uh, directions that uh, that weren't quite in keeping with what actually happened in the past. I sometimes use email to do the same thing 
where mm-hmm. I'll either send out an email or uh, ask a question that I may already know the answer to just to get people to respond in writing in a form right. that we can all pull up at a later <laughs> date and say, yeah, hey, this is exactly what you said. Yeah. I sometimes leave and I ask people to reiterate something that we're talking about in face-to-face. Can you send that to me in an email? Yeah. So I have are, are, pe- are people usually willing to do that? Almost always. Um, part of that being the, in where I work, public information and documentation is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's perhaps the easiest way to document information. Until the Outlook server crashes. <laughs> Sorry, I need your backup servers. IT's problem, not mine. Well, it's yours if IT can't get the system back up and going. Yeah, I suppose. Now, when I did uh, custom machinery, it was not unusual, and this is not an in-house issue, but this is in-house versus vendor issue. So, if and I've played on both sides of the of this uh, this line. If you gave a contract to somebody to go build a machine, and they would start to build the machine. And you go down the road and you decided, hey, we needed a new button to, you know, or something on, you know, some feature on the machine. Then there'd have to be some sort of engineering change request. And the, the vendor would have to sign that off or bring a proposal and you'd agree to the price and you'd sign off on that. And so if the trust disappears, then there starts to be a real haggling about every little detail. And you go, well, I want the button moved three millimeters to the right. Well, that'll be an engineering change request. And now, you know, everything becomes, you know, a, a detail that has to be signed off and agreed to and haggled about. And certainly when you're, when you're working in-house, you, you hate to get to that point that uh, the trust has is, is gone so far south that uh, you're, you're asking everybody to sign off and everything. I mean, that's a, that's a larger, I mean, that really poisons the well when every time they ask something, you're at, I mean you're you're bringing the contract into the discussion i mean yeah it, it it's a standard it's a standard way of practice when you're dealing with outside contractors at least in many mm-hmm. companies it is uh but it's certainly it's certainly a thing you you want not to turn to in house if you if you start doing this then my sense is your days are probably numbered in that organization if there's so little trust Either you need to get out of there because you, you can't trust anybody else or they have so little trust in you that you're going to be asked to leave. So that's certainly not a, a good situation. But but there is a need for, I think, communicating ideas on a regular basis, at least keeping people informed as to, to what's going on. Yeah, everyone needs to be on the same page when scope change happens. you know, And, and usually it's as simple as getting people to sign off on uh, – schedule changes because i mean it's it's from an engineering point of view it's usually pretty easy to fit whatever you need to fit into the box or you know make it twice as powerful or twice as sensitive it's it's always the time you know we want all these additional features and we want it in the same period of time and when you say signed off do you mean literally sign someone signing a document or you just mean somebody's given verbal approval or or how do you go about that uh now we're back to the emails and I think it depends on the scale and scope of the change. Yeah, it's, it, that's true. Yeah, if it's a million-dollar change, maybe it needs to be literally signed off. If it's something simple, you know, verbal verbal agreement. My experience has always has never been the million-dollar changes. It's always been the death by a thousand, you know, thousand-dollar changes. 
A thousand dollars being equivalent to a paper cut. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that, that one of the things too, as, as you're going through the process, there will be unknowns and people understand that there will be certain unknowns. Uh, but as you come to conclusions, you know, in, initially it's like, well, the pro the unit price has to be between has to be less than $15. And then you start going through that and you go, well, we can do it for less than 15, but there's just no way that we can do it for less than 12. Well, then you need to let people know about that. Uh, you need to update, you know, restate your position and restate your understanding as you go along uh, so that everybody's up to speed and that somebody can't come sneaking in at the last minute and go, well, we need to make that a $10 unit cost. Well, if, if it just can't be done, then you need to let people know about that early on. And, and being very upfront with data uh, in situations like that can be very helpful. If you know, if you have a costed bomb available for everyone to see, and somebody says, "I want you," you know, we're going to drop this by two, three dollars. You know, where are they going to find that in the bill of materials? Mm -hmm. You know, force them into—I shouldn't say force—invite them into the technical discussion. You know, where they have to start thinking about the trade-offs they're asking for. Right. Yeah, one of the things I used to do was I would put together a spreadsheet that had all the costs and or probabilities or assumptions or whatever was being made. And they would say, well, what's the cost going to be? And I said, well, it depends what the inputs are. Well, what does that mean? Well, you tell me what you think the input should be, and I will show you what the output costs will be. And I would say, these are the assumptions I made on inputs. Do you have any better assumptions? And actually, I never came across anybody who said, yes, I have better assumptions. And I said, well, with these assumptions, this is, you know, this is what the range of output costs will be. And I showed them, you know, here's the model, here are your inputs, and if you have better information, tell me. Uh, but without better information, here's the range that's going to be. And I, I think you're absolutely right, uh, Brian, that uh, in a lot of cases, they either don't know what's involved in the decision making, or they just don't want to be, uh, they don't want to spend the emotional energy of trying to get through the decision making process and deal with all these technical details that they really don't understand. And I think oftentimes, you know, your project or even whatever task you're working on might be one or two percent of their time. You know, you may be spending a hundred percent of your time on that, but it, it only makes up a your project is their responsibility only makes up a fraction of their time. So they can't possibly know the details and the depth that you have. And so it's it's easy to ask the question. And I also think it's very, if, if you're an engineer that likes to please people, it's very easy to get sucked into, <laughs> you know, trying to please them. Right. I've certainly been there and as a result agreed to. I So earlier I made the, the comment about somebody may try to be ambiguous to get you to commit to something. Like we can get this done in six weeks. And being the pleasing type, I always wanted to say, sure, we can get that done. If you think we can get it done in six weeks, I'll find some way to get it done. And I've gotten myself bit a few times by, at least early on in my career, by not being, uh, not throwing in a few conditions about, well, if our vendor comes back with the prototype parts within two weeks or our quality staff can, you know, inspect these things in a reasonable period of time. Uh, then yes, we can do it in six weeks as opposed to making an unconditional promise that six weeks will be it. I've also heard a, another good piece of advice is you never, you never respond negatively without some sort of a suggestion. You never say, 
you know, we want you to do blank. Never be the guy in the meeting that says that absolutely cannot be done. That's a stupid idea. You have to be the you have to be the engineer, the person in the meeting that says, well, <laughs> uh, to do that, we would have to do X. You know, right? To exceed the speed of light, we would have to, you know, blank. Or to do that, we would have to exceed the speed of light. <laughs> right. Definitely comes into play at work too all the time when we get, uh, you know, we're doing scheduling for chip validation and everyone's like, well, it's three weeks enough time to, to budget in for, you know, kicking the tires on this thing and making sure it works. And ideally, less time is needed. You need about a week, but there's always bugs. And depending on how critical the bug is, it could take more than three weeks. It could take exactly three weeks. You just, you never know. And then you have to take into account, is that three weeks complete time, or is that flexible if you want to maybe do a quick metal spin of the chip to adjust, you know, an easily easily tunable parameter that the designer left in the chip, or if you want to send out for what's called the FIB, where they actually burn away the plastic of the IC and, you know, use a laser to cut and reattach traces, um... All those things take time, and if you're assuming three weeks with those, then I know I have to do more work up front as opposed to I have three weeks, then report, and then we do all this stuff. So there's there's very different answers into how you answer that, and you know knowing that up front and managing their expectations is a big part of it. That's a really key point is that the technical issues are are usually far less important than expectations. If a machine doesn't work or a product doesn't work, that's not as bad as leading people to believe that it will work and them discovering at a uncomfortable moment that it doesn't. It's really important to, uh, to let people know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're dealing with that now without getting into too much detail because it's still an ongoing project. Um, we're in the midst of validating a new, a new IC and, you know, it's got to meet certain power consumption specs and, yeah, we're we're doing all right, but it could be better. And we we know we get for sure another revision of the chip to to improve upon things further. But trying to decide what changes to make, you know, we have a list of four or five, and two of those are very high risk. And we're you know we're trying to make sure that management understands like we want to do another small revision in between the two, and you can bill that as we're going to have to do these things eventually down the road when. Another customer lowers the power requirements even further. Um, mm-hmm. This is kind of future research while also fixing problems with this chip right now. And, you know, seeing if they want to go for the high-risk solution uh, that also is high reward, or if we should just do the things we know for sure will work with little to no risk, but maybe won't save us as much power here in this application. Yeah, well, I think the, the traditional advice of under-promise and over-deliver is... Uh intended to manage those expectations so that if there are any surprises, they're always surprises to the upside and not surprises to the downside. Yeah. But knowing that, you know, we will have to do this, if not for this chip, maybe the chip after the two chips later, um, and knowing if some of these new designs will work and being able to prove them out in a slightly less risky scenario is kind of appealing to them. So they may approve you know, maybe one of the two high-risk solutions. Mm-hmm. So we're still waiting on all that. 
It's also very difficult to it's very difficult to manage expectations when you're when you're under the gun from a regulatory failure issue, uh, and I think that's universal across across almost every part of engineering that I've seen, uh, mm-hmm. or at least every product group I've seen. You know, design's done, you're ready to ship, and you're running some sort of validation test, and it fails, and. Uh, it's, I think it's very frustrating for other people, not just the person trying to solve the problem, to sit by and try to manage that. How do you manage somebody who's solving the problem? How do you lay out a schedule for problem solving? It's so non-linear and non-deterministic. I, there are, I don't really have any good solutions for how to do that. <laughs> and I suspect that there aren't, but that, that sort of transitions nicely into the next area of ambiguity that we talked about. So We've talked about ambiguity in requests, that is the, the ambiguous nature of, of the requests that are made of us as engineers. But there's also ambiguity in reaction, that is our problem-solving approach. How do we deal with the inputs and the outputs and the, our, our lack of knowledge, perhaps, of the inputs and outputs and how they interact? And so maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, how we take a real-world situation that has a lot of ambiguity and uh, go about the process of putting an engineering solution on it. One of the expectations that people have is uh, driven potentially by procedural crime dramas, that you have these ambiguous problems, these murders that people solve, and yet er- by the end of every episode, the the technical solution and the, the piece of evidence is found and, you know, the case is solved. Yes. And... Uh, I guess engineering is not in any way, shape, or form like that. <laughs> That's why there's sustaining engineering departments all across the land. Exactly. Just because the product has the release stamp on it means nothing almost. <laughs> that just means you're on the hook to fix it when it breaks. Yes. <laughs> no, I was going to say, you can also uh, you know, use kind of ambiguity to your advantage and some stuff like that with sustaining engineering. Whereas, you know, the design engineer, as part of their job, comes up with a, a a debug plan, if you will, for the guys on the floor who do validation testing or, you know, the guys in the other sustaining engineering department, um, you know, where they have their their manual that you wrote them. And it says, well, if, uh, you know, you're supposed to get 30 degrees of articulation from this this arm and you're only getting 20, you know, look to grease these couple joints or you know, tighten or loosen this nut here. And, you know, cause you saw that three or four times during your validation when it was still a new product and, uh, can help them along and help them make decisions faster and keep things moving smoothly. The sustaining engineer, I've not heard of this. Tell me more. No. Um, <laughs> uh, on my first co-op when I was at GE, there was, uh, two engineering departments, you know, sort of, there was a uh, new product introduction, and then there was the standing engineering department. Mm-hmm. And, you know, say they had a new, we were doing borescopes, which were, um, you know, video cameras at the end of a, a tube that would transmit. And you'd use them for inspecting pipes and airplane engines and stuff. And the new product introduction group that I was in, um, you know, they would do new products. So you would think of, oh, let's do it handheld or let's do this one uh, with, you know, a little claw at the end so you can grab a little screw that fell down the airplane engine instead of taking the whole thing apart. So they would think it up, come up with the designs, you know, do the initial prototype or two. Um, 
maybe a small production run. And then when they felt they had things up and running, all right, they would hand it off to sustaining engineering who would manage that and any of the old designs that were already selling. And the new product mm-hmm. introduction would move on to another, uh, another task and get the next thing out the door. Hmm. So sort of like a production or um, maintenance or support engineering. Yeah. I mean, they were, it wasn't like they were all techs or anything. You know, there were still quite a few, you know, masters, engineers and everything. Um, Cause they were overseeing the production floor. And, you know, if there was a, a failure, say, you know, all of a sudden the LED supplier went bad or something and, you had to shut down production to figure out why these units were all of a sudden failing the internal tests. Um, the sustaining engineering department would jump in first because they have all the documentation on it and they've been overseeing production. And if it turns out like, oh, there was actually a design flaw that had been overlooked somehow for the whole two years we've been making this thing, well, then they would go back and call the design engineers in who originally built the part and uh, they would step in and see what kind of changes would have to be made made at that scale. So sort of playing the role of detective at that point. Yeah. Yeah. They would be called in when they had to, but their, their main job was to introduce new parts or sustaining would take over and get all the documentation. And one of the things that helped them out a lot was, you know, the little manuals and stuff saying, uh, you know, if, if led four isn't lighting up when you plug, plug this connector in, then test these four voltages here or, you know, if the houses don't fit together right, you know, file down this particular node because we saw in our machining process that there may be some extra burrs. Yeah, so they were they were utilizing these documents or they were writing these documents? Uh, the new product guys were writing the documents, but the okay. uh, sustaining engineers were using them. Okay. And I also had to write them, too, for a, a different department as well, um, or a different co-op, I mean, uh, the summer before I graduated. I was in uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., and the company I worked for there, we had to write on all the new products, you know, troubleshooting guides for the, the text down to production. Right. You know, they would know, all right, well, plug it in, run this internal test. If it fails, test A, you know, follow these four steps. If it fails, test B, follow these four steps. And, you know, if it fails all these tests, well, then call down design and give them the part and they'll figure it out. So who would handle a process obsolescence or, you know, a recertification of new machines? Would that still be sustain, uh, sustaining? I believe so, but I wasn't really around for any of that. And I was also a new product, so I only know what interaction I had with them. Very cool. Yeah. So, yeah, it was cool. But, you know, using using the ambiguity you saw as a, a new product engineer, uh, you could use it to save time, you know, down the road as other engineers were using your design and overseeing your products as you moved on to other things. And the term ambiguity in decision-making has a slightly different meaning than it does in verbal communication. You know, depending on which author you read, uh, they make distinctions between risk and uncertainty and ambiguity. And so risk is the idea that the input-output relationships are known. That is, you have a solid model. But the actual distribution, uh, I'm sorry, and the actual distribution is known. So if you're, let's say you're doing a flipping a coin uh, experiment, then you assume you have a, you start off with, you have a fair coin. It's, it's a 50-50 shot at whether it's going to be heads or tails. And you don't go any further than that. You just, you assume that model is correct. 
You don't know whether the next flip is going to be heads or tails, but you know what the distribution is going to be. It's a 50, 50, uh, process. And so you could toss that. So that's, if you're making decisions, if you're, I'm sorry, if you're problem solving under risk, then you know what the model is and you know what the distribution is. If you are dealing with problem solving under uncertainty, then you're not assuming you've got, say, if you're doing coin flipping, you don't assume you have a 50-50 relationship. It might be 40-60. You don't know. You you know what the input and output is. You've got to flip the coin, there will be a result, but you don't know what the distributions are. So you may uh, use more of a Bayesian approach where you're actually going to measure the results and as a result of that, figure out what your what your probabilities are. Or a, another approach is problem solving under ambiguity. And this would be, not only do you not know what the distribution is, you don't know what the inputs and outputs are. So here you may be dealing with, you think the coin may be bent, or you think it may not, you know, the weight may be not equally distributed, or the, the fact there's more mass in the face on the fit, one side of the coin is more than the other side. Now you start having to deal with experiments trying to figure out what the input-output relationships are. You know, what does the size of the face on the coin have to do with its its output? And so this gets a, more, a lot more complicated, a lot more expensive. And finally, there are complex ambiguities. And, and this is trying to do problem solving in a situation where no amount of reasonable investigation is ever going to get you an answer. That is, if I asked you what, what the weather will be in Topeka, Kansas in uh, the year 2017, you may have all the inputs, you know, from all over the world right now, but there's virtually no amount of, of modeling that's going to give you an accurate answer for something several years out. Is there a, uh, an engineering analogy for that? For something that's complex, and, uh, and complex ambiguity. Well, certainly I think that anytime that you're trying to have an effect on, nature or the economy or something that's, mm-hmm. just, you know, perhaps something that gets as complex as maybe the electrical grid. I don't know. I'm or not like, in that realm. Or like a wear and degradation, uh, you know, uh, metallurgical uh, degradation and flexing. I, I imagine things that, you know, I don't know how well those are bounded. I always kind of imagine that, uh, or actually the one for the one that I'm most familiar with is uh, degradation of uh, like ground terminals. You know, you mm-hmm. always assume that your ground connections are absolute and right. those change over time, but it's really unknowable. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a reason that when we model, we break things off from the rest of the world. You know, there's there's the world that's inside our box uh, that we're modeling and the world that's outside, and we have to assume there's at some level we're able to make our our uh, our system independent of the rest of the universe Mm-hmm. in order for us to do any kind of computations. And, and obviously, given the success of modern technology and, you know, we build, uh, you know, the, the locomotive and engines and clocks and, and semiconductors and we do all kinds of things that we are able to isolate our systems sufficiently that they work pretty well. And the, the influences, the random influences of, uh, you know, a black hole forming on the other side of the universe doesn't really affect what's going on in our, uh, in our smartphone, in our hand. So that concept, which is kind of the heart of engineering, that we break things down into smaller and smaller problems and we isolate things until we can deal with them, uh, that's a, usually a pretty good assumption. But uh, there certainly are cases where we can't completely isolate ourselves from uh, the rest of the world 
and uh, the rest of the world's a pretty complex system. So how reasonable do you think, uh, you know, particularly with risk, how reasonable do you think people's uh, assumptions are uh, with respect to the fairness of the coin? Because it seems like oftentimes you're in meetings where risk comes up and, you know, you're always sliding the scale to, oh, this is unlikely to happen. In general, we're pretty bad at analyzing risk. When the risk is low, we underassume it. The risk is high. We overassume it. And so we tend to rely on things like personal experience. Did uh, our college career go well? Well, then we, then we assume everybody's college career will go well. Did we struggle with math? Then we assume everybody must have struggled with math. I mean, it's hard for us not to think the rest of the world sees, experiences life as we experience it. Uh, that being said, I think that especially within, engineer, within engineering organizations, each company has its own assumptions and its own trends and its own tendencies. And so if they've been using this model to design a trailer for pulling heavy loads and it's worked for 40 years, they're unlikely when Jeff comes into the room and says, hey, I think we should make a new design for trailers. They go, we've been doing variations on this for 40 years. Why should we change it now? Does that mean it's the right model? Does that mean they have any idea what the distribution of probabilities of it failing are? Not necessarily, but they've been using it for 40 years, and they're likely going to stick with it until it doesn't work. Uh, I'm just going to throw out there an exercise that I have found helps with that sliding the scale to the the high end or the low end is mm-hmm. breaking risk into probability and impact. Okay. And just looking at those two things completely independently, I've found that people tend to view it more realistically in both sides. Okay. But so can you give just a real brief example? Um, okay. Say doing, um, soil investigations and, um, so looking at soils and we, we know if there's some sort of risk of what, what kind of soil we expect to have in, in, in a given area. So we can determine a probability of how likely we are to hit unsuitable soils. Okay. We also know it costs a lot of money to repair those soils. And if we can look at those two things independently, knowing that if we have to do a soil correction and take out a lot of soil, it's going to cost us a lot of money. We have a very, very high impact from that, that risk. Right. But we may know that this area is primarily sand, so it's got a low probability. And just looking at that versus looking at the risk of what's the risk of hitting bad soil? Well, it's kind of all over the board, but if you break it down into those two pieces, you see, it's going to cost me a lot if we hit it, but I don't expect to hit it. Okay, well, that sounds like a reasonable method to attack things. So my point in, in going through this uh, paper, and I'll put a, a link in the uh, show notes, it's the article that I'm referencing is called Choice Over Uncertain- Uncertainty and Ambiguity in Technical Problem Solving. The, the case the authors make is that the amount of ambiguity is not uh, given uh, externally. That is, the, the, the problem solvers, we as engineers, have a choice of what level of uh, difficulty we're going to work with. Are we going to uh, just deal with the risk? We're going to use some, some model that we already know and we makes a lot of assumptions and we assume we already know the, the distributions. Or are we going to deal with a, a situation where uh, 
We assume we know something about the inputs and outputs, but we have to take measurements in order to determine the probabilities. Or are we going to assume that we know nothing about the situation and we have to develop our own models between inputs and outputs, which would be dealing with ambiguity? So the idea is that we as engineers have a choice. But, of course, the choice is that it has to be valid. And so there are a lot of situations where rely, you know, we make the assumption that it's a fair coin. In a lot of cases, that's a pretty reasonable assumption. But how do we know when it's not a reasonable assumption and we need to investigate the distribution or whether we're completely messed up on the inputs and outputs and we have to do scientific investigation to figure out what a proper model might be? I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm a little bit too cynical. I always assume the coin's rigged. <laughs> Yeah, but you can't you can't spend every you can't approach every engineering problem with well I'm going to go do a you know a two year investigation of of how this thing works. You have to make some trade off. I mean, this is what or- engineering organizations have to do is say what seems reasonable because there is no absolute am- answer. I mean, I guess that's co- sort of the the reason we got into this episode about ambiguity is so much of engineering is ambiguous. What is expected? What can be delivered? What can be done? What inputs can you use? What outputs are expected? Who the heck knows? Not I. Not I. That's why we make assumptions. Well, and and I think that uh, – so, so the, the point I wanted to get a, a part about the ambiguity in decision-making is that as engineers, we use models all the time, and we need to know the limitations of those models. You know, we under, need to understand their their consequences – and uh, when we're dealing, we're venturing into areas that have been previously untested. Uh, it's nice to take a few experiments and say, well, we understand what the new model is going to be. But I suggest we need to take small steps when we're getting into that. Uh, uh, you don't want to, especially if you're dealing uh, with issues where safety is involved, you don't want to go too far off the main path. Don't want to make too many uh, rash assumptions. Always keep things simple until you, uh, you have, you're proven otherwise. So the final area that uh, we talked about with regard to ambiguity was that of responsibility, and that is what engineers are expected to do. We, we talked with James Trevelyan in a previous episode, and he was talking about the fact that engineers truly don't feel like they're doing anything if they're not doing calculations or they're not doing equations or they're not doing design work. Uh, the part, you know, he talked about that 60% of our work as engineers is involved in communicating with others, whether through presentations or email or meetings and like a third of our time on average of course is spent managing the work of others but we don't feel like his his investigation suggested that engineers don't feel like that is real work that's not engineering work that's just something else we have to do so what do you think the role of engineers are what uh, what is it that we contribute to the organization i feel like i'm still trying to figure that out <laughs> So, so does your boss come to you and say, this is what is expected of you? I mean, when you sit down for your annual review, is there a, a discussion as to exactly what you're expected to complete and what you're expected to do for the organization? There's a general list, yeah, but you're allowed to, uh, you know, f- fill that in too as well. It's not just your boss handing you a list of tasks and you, you know, checking them off as you go out throughout the year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I know I'm assigned to these projects. It's, my goal to help get them out the door. And then, you know, so when I get back from my Christmas uh, Christmas holiday, I'll have to fill out a bunch of paperwork saying these are the steps I took to 
help get these products out the door. And this is what I contributed to the company. Um, you know, this is, this is how I fit into the organization. It's not uh, handed down from on high. And in those areas where there is no, somebody's not said, we need you, Carmen, to do X, Y, Z, but you're free to improvise on your own. Have you thought about what, you know, sort of what internal measures or, or philosophies or, you know, so how do you decide what you think needs to be done? I mean, you, you certainly have this, a choice whether to work on, you know, at the bench or work at your desk or to work on writing new documentation or, or how do you just, if someone's not telling you what you need to do, how do you decide? I take the George Costanzo approach. I have a little shelf and a pillow under my desk and I just take naps. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and does that work for you? Yeah, more often than not. Um, it, it worked for George. <laughs> Uh, until his boss heard the ticking of his alarm clock and uh, right. <laughs> thought it was a bomb. So I, I learned from his mistake and went digital. Oh, very good. <laughs> Maybe that's one of the unspoken talents of a good engineer is somebody who – because rarely are you given an explicit and finite series of tasks to execute in order to be done with something. Uh, and oftentimes, even if you're executing toward, towards a procedure, you're running a test – if it's sufficiently complex, eventually the wheels are going to come off the cart and uh -huh. you're going to have to start making decisions. And, you know, a big por portion of your job is deciding how you're going to solve the problems. And nobody's, almost nobody's going to be there to help you with that. So, yeah, I mean, rarely has it, rarely has the question ever been framed to me like, have I, I don't know that I've ever been judged based on, did you execute to these, to the plan? <laughs> mm -hmm. And so what do you think you were judged on? I think you're typically judged based on uh, how you react to the wheels coming off the cart. Do you, know, mm -hmm. do you always keep, do you always keep the machine moving forward? Uh, Every time you encounter a problem that you've never seen before, do you, be, do you begin deconstructing it into solvable segments? You know, uh, you know, make your list, of, make a list of, of the things you know and the things you don't know. And how quickly can you work through those things that you don't know? Mm -hmm. And then I think that at that point it's just subjective. I mean, are you doing it fast enough to satisfy other people? So you do get judged to a great extent based on other people's impressions of your work as opposed to a, you know, a technical measure of your work. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that goes without saying. I mean, <laughs> in, in so much as our jobs aren't quantitative and we can't, re we can't reduce all ambiguity and run analysis and everything, nobody's ever going to sit down and put a stopwatch to an inch as much as they'd love to put a stopwatch to an engineer and say, did you design this widget before the timer ran out? <laughs> that would be an awesome game show, though. <laughs> Actually, it reminds me of a lot of Junkyard Wars. Well, I was going to say, some of the some of the reality shows came sort of close to that, although they were having to put together a system as opposed to designing just a single com component. Mm -hmm. But but it's possible now, you know, you put a, you put a group of people together with, a, you know, a 3D modeler and a, a 3D printer, and you could start to you start crank, start cranking out components in a pretty short period of time. Absolutely. Of course, I guess the 3D printers aren't that fast these days. You, you'd be fine. You'd have to take a, uh, 
either a, a commercial break while the 3D printer worked or you'd have to stretch the show out <laughs> over about four hours. <laughs> That's way of editing. Right. It looks like it was done in five minutes. And they don't show all the scrap that the machine created. Yeah, well, that's like all the home shows where they show somebody coming in and repairing the bathroom, you know, redoing the bath or redoing the kitchen, and it all goes smoothly. And 30 minutes later, they're all tidying up. Every project I ever get into, you know, involves multiple trips to the hardware store to get new parts or replacement parts or multiple periods of, of loud cussing as I realize that I've done something incorrectly. <laughs> you know, they got to they gotta keep uh, the FCC happy. Well, as far as the cussing? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, they had that, uh, Discovery had that show with, uh, oh gosh, uh, was it Kumar from Harold and Kumar? I forget the actor's name. He was also in House. It's going to bug me. I thought the best part about it, uh, I think it was like the big brain. Yeah, big brain theory. Yeah. And I thought the best part about that was there was a, the emotional stresses and of people on that show, I think, very closely re, uh, resembled what I've seen in industry. You know, the personality types. I don't want to single any one of them out, but I mean, it was it was an it was more of an emotionally intense show than a technically intense show, which I think is <laughs> often how it goes. Yeah. They, oh, the actor's name was Cal Penn. Cal Penn. Cal Penn. Loved him on House. <laughs> yeah, they, they kind of got him off the show in a weird way, but he was good. By the way, I mean, The Big Brain Theory was an awful show. The Big Brain Theory was awful? <laughs> yes. I thought you said it was. you liked it. I liked that aspect of it. I thought oh, the okay. challenges were a bit ridiculous. Yeah, I had, I had some problems with it, too, but we could probably do a whole episode on engineering reality shows. And maybe we'll have to. Book it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we should probably consider this one uh, getting close to the end, and we should uh, think about wrapping it up. I, I guess I'd just conclude the bit about uh, ambiguity and responsibility by saying that uh, if you're confused about what you need to be doing, then that's a good time to talk to your boss or manager about you know what the expectations are, and uh, also just you know give some consideration to what uh, what Professor Trevelyan was saying in that. The economic value of engineers comes from reducing uncertainty. So if the corporation is uncertain about uh, how it's going to, you know, how many widgets it can make, then your job is reducing that uncertainty and telling them how many they can make or improving the amount they can make so they're certain about that. Or, you know, you might want to also consider the impact on other divisions. If you make something with lots of bells and widgets, is that that's great for you. Uh, I'm sorry, bells and whistles, that's great for you, but it may negatively impact those involved in training or those involved in repair or those involved in purchasing. Uh, so what's what's good from a technical aspect for the engineer may not be always good for the organization. I feel like you shouldn't have tied it all together. We should have left it with an ambiguous ending. Ooh, that would be good. That's sort of like the uh, the awkward pause on, uh, on uh, was it, it's not Craig Kilborn, who has the show now in the evenings that Craig... Uh, uh, Ferguson, Craig yeah, Ferguson on CBS. They often end their interviews with an awkward pause. <laughs> Can't say I watched that show, but I know what you're talking about. Okay. Any last uh, any last thoughts on ambiguity? There's the awkward pause. Hey, we did it. Terrific. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let's uh, consider this one wrapped up and. Uh, 
we'll get together in a couple weeks and uh, meet again in the uh, the engineering commons. All right, take it easy, guys. See ya. The Engineering Commons is produced by Analog Life, LLC, and Engineering Revision. Theme music by Paul Stevenson. For more info, visit theengineeringcommons.com.